I want to welcome everyone to our final session of this semester. And I can tell you that I had no idea we'd be teaching the final six sessions during a pandemic. <clears throat> I actually wrote these sessions, the seven churches of Revelation and the Rapture. I wrote them in the December, January timeframe. And I can tell you, I had no uh, foresight or foreknowledge that when this semester took place that we would be in a worldwide lockdown pandemic, but I'm sure God already knew. So tonight in this last session, I want to take one last look at the rapture of the church. I want to look at the people who are left behind. Maybe you find that an interesting or an unusual way to close the session, but I want to look at the people who are left behind. And I want to specifically use the parable of the ten bridesmaids as the foundation for the question. There were five bridesmaids that were foolish, and they did not have enough oil in their lamps. And Jesus clearly describes that they were not ready and they were not waiting. They were not anticipating the event that the bridegroom is coming. So I want to look at the people who are left behind, the five foolish bridesmaids. So tonight, I want to ask five questions about the five bridesmaids that are left behind when the door is closed and the bridegroom has come. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you, Lord, that uh, we don't have to be caught unaware. That day does not have to, have to catch us unaware like a trap. For your Holy Spirit will give us warning. You'll give us a sense of discernment. We won't be caught like a thief in the night. For Lord, we're children of the day, children of the light. So Lord, I pray that tonight we will uh, experience your word in power and authority. And we'll understand uh, what's at stake in, these, uh, in this parable of the ten bridesmaids. We'll understand... Uh, the choices, how incredibly important they are, how we live our lives and how we uh, uh, prioritize each day in our relationship with you. So Lord, I pray your blessing upon this session, this final session, and may you use it for the glory of your name and for the souls of man, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Five questions about the five bridesmaids who will be left behind. And I'm not talking about five bridesmaids. I'm talking about the illustration that there will be people left behind when the door closes. The door will have opened, and those ready will have gone through the door, and they had a notice. The notice was a shout. The bridegroom is coming. They were ready. They were waiting. They were prepared. The door opened. They went through. The door closed, and people knocked and said, now we're ready. It's too late. Five questions. Five questions about the five left behind. First question, what will it be like to be left behind? It's kind of a generic overall question, but I'm, I'm trying to make us think about the choices that we make every day of our life. What will it be like to be left behind? Question number two, can people be saved who are left behind? Is there still a chance, a window of opportunity? If you've gone through these sessions, we believe that there's a seven-year tribulation that follows. 
Uh, Jesus describes it like this, that if those days were not cut short, no human life would remain on the planet. Everyone would die, but it will be cut short for the sake of the elect. Will there be people, question number two, that can be saved during the tribulation after the door is closed and the church is taken? Question number three. Will God offer any mercy or grace during the tribulation? Or will it just be wrath and judgment? Question number four. If the church is the presence of God on the earth now, if the church is the temple, the house of the Holy Spirit on earth today, how will anyone come to salvation when the church is taken away, when the church is caught up? If, in other words, let me put it like this. If, if we are the light of the world and we are the, the, the body in which the Holy Spirit of Christ dwells in, the temple in which the Holy Spirit of Christ dwells in, in these last days, in the church age, how could anybody come to Christ if the light is taken from the earth? Jesus says no one can come to the Son unless the Father draws them. And if there's no preachers, there's no gospel, how's anybody going to come to Christ? Final question number five. Will God's Spirit be totally removed during the tribulation? I, I know that the, the questions are overlapping, but it is to cause us to think about the question itself. Will God's Spirit be totally removed during the tribulation? Some people have said that when the church leaves, all possibility of salvation leaves with the church. Is that what the Bible teaches? So let's, let's start looking. Let's start looking. I'm going to attempt tonight to answer all five of those questions in this final session. What, what, what better way to wrap up this uh, seven churches of Revelation and the rapture of the church than to deal with this final question about will anyone be able to come to Christ after the church's departure? Now, I'm going to say in advance this very carefully. No one knows all the detailed answers to those questions. We can look at the Scripture. We can ask the Holy Spirit, and I already have asked the Holy Spirit to reveal truth so that we can, to the best of our knowledge, be able to understand what the Bible says about these questions, about the tribulation and the world that will follow the, take, the called up church, the raptured church the five bridesmaids that are left behind. Yes. Yes. Those left behind after the rapture will experience, listen carefully, those left behind after the church is caught up in the air to meet the Lord, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, will experience the wrath of God. Why do I say that? Because the Bible is quite clear that what's about to happen after the church's departure is God's wrath, his judgment, and it will be a worldwide event. Now, most of us in our lifetime have never really known a worldwide event kind of a thing. 
even World War I and World War II, which none of my generation was even uh, alive during uh, World War I, obviously, but World War II, uh, uh, even most of those people were children during that time or have vague memories. But, but this pandemic has kind of illustrated that the world has become a much smaller place. And that things can happen in China that affect Anderson County in Kentucky. And you can kind of see that a worldwide event can, that something happening in the world can affect everyone on the planet. And Jesus is going to make it clear. I'm going to give you two examples that, that those left behind after the church is taken away are going to fall under the judgment of God because the judgment of God is going to come upon the whole earth. Now, we'll talk later about the purpose of the judgment, but I want you to understand the answer to the question. Will those left behind after the rapture experience the wrath of God? Yes, it will be a worldwide event. Let's start in Luke chapter 21. I have used this scripture over and over and over and over to describe several things. It is given in Luke's account of the Olivet Discourse, near the end of the Olivet Discourse, where Jesus describes the events of his final return. And here's what he says. Luke 21, 34, watch out. There's the ready and waiting. There's the five bridesmaids with oil in their lamps. Don't let your hearts be dulled by carousing and drunkenness and by the worries of this life. It's not just the party life. It's the worry of life itself that's got you distracted from the big event. The big event is and has always been, when is the king coming? When is Jesus coming? Don't let that day catch you unaware. Why does Jesus say that? Especially at the end of the Olivet Discourse where he describes his return. Don't let that day catch you unaware. It's like a trap. And many people are going to be caught in that trap. The five bridesmaids are caught in that trap. They're foolish. They weren't ready. They weren't waiting. Waiting. They, were, they, they must have been caught up in this worries of life. They were getting their oil in town, I suppose. That day will come upon everyone living on the earth. I told you it was a worldwide event. That day is going to come upon everyone living on the earth. There's not going to be anybody excluded. Everyone living on the earth. Look at this last sentence. So keep alert at all times. That's the ready and waiting mentality before the first five bridesmaids leave. Keep alert at all times and pray this prayer. Pray that you might be strong enough to escape these coming horrors and stand before the Son of Man. It would be hard to refute this scripture in relation to the five foolish and the five wise bridesmaids. Pray that you'd be strong enough to be in the first five who leave. It is a worldwide event. Let me give you the second scripture. Revelation 3.10. This we covered in the seven churches of Revelation. This particular church is the church at Philadelphia. And Jesus says this to the church at Philadelphia. Because you have, Revelation 3.10, because you have obeyed my command to persevere. Now, I'm convinced that this is a message to the church in the last days that is under great pressure to go along with the world. 
because you have obeyed my command to persevere, I'm going to do something. Jesus to a church, I'm going to protect you from the great time of testing. Now, is that the tribulation? I believe it is. I'm going to protect you from the great time of testing that will come upon the whole world to test those who belong to this world. Now, the church doesn't belong to this world. So they're going to be protected by Jesus from the time of testing. I believe that's the seven-year tribulation. But the point in this particular issue is it's a worldwide event. Will those left behind experience the wrath of God? It is a worldwide event. So yes, if you live in the world, you're going to be under the wrath of God during the tribulation. And yes, listen carefully. Even though you're in the world and you're in the tribulation, yes, some people, now I'm going to broaden the, cat, I'm going to broaden the category at least to start. Some people will come to salvation during the tribulation. We're going to refer to them as tribulation saints. Some people during the seven years, after the, the five bridesmaids, after the church has been t- caught up and the door has closed, some people, the tribulation will follow, will f- come to Christ during the tribulation. The Bible says that God is the God of love and the God of wrath. In fact, the New Living Translation is going to describe it that he, can you see how he is both kind and severe in the same person? How can you be the God of love and the God of wrath? And how can you be the God who is kind and the God who is severe? Well, it's pretty logical that I've met a whole lot of people that were loving people, but they also had a very uh, angry side that, that they could become very angry. You can love and also be, uh, have a time of wrath. You can be very kind, but you could also be very severe. God is both. He is the God of love and the God of wrath. And some people, let's be honest, have a real struggle with this fundamental idea that the God, uh, that God is a God of love and a God of wrath. That, that we see in the Old Testament what many people think is the God of wrath, and they see in the New Testament the God of love, and they can't imagine that he's the same person, that he will ever be able to be the God of wrath now after the time of grace in Jesus Christ. Well, let's go to the New Testament in the book of Romans. Paul's letter to the Roman church, Romans eleven twenty two. Notice how God is both kind and severe. This is the apostle Paul writing in the church age to the churches. This is a Gentile church in Rome. Notice that God is both kind and severe. He is severe toward those who disobeyed. But he's kind to you if... He's severe toward those who disobey, those who reject the truth. But he is kind to you if you continue to trust in his kindness. But if you stop trusting in his kindness, you you also will be cut off. Now, that's a reference to Israel in the Old Testament. They rejected the Lord's kindness. They abused his mercy. 
And he, what, what does Paul say to us in the church age? If you stop trusting, you also will be cut off. This trusting is called faith. But if you stop trusting, Paul says, not me, Paul says, if you stop trusting the kindness of God, you also will be cut off. Faith is not a religious ideology. Faith is a born-again life of Christ. Led by the Holy Spirit, God's wrath is displayed to reveal his love and his mercy. Let me say it again. God's wrath. No one wants to be under God's wrath. Who in the world wants to be under God's wrath? But I want you to learn something tonight in this final session. God's wrath, past, present, and future has always been to display or reveal his love and mercy. How in the world, preacher, can you say his wrath is to display his love and mercy? Let me give you an example, okay? I want to prove it to you that God's wrath, when it arrives, when it comes, when it's manifest on the earth, it, it doesn't just come to destroy. It comes, yes, there is a destruction element to his wrath, but it also comes to reveal his love and his mercy at the same time. Let's go back to Egypt. Let's go back to when Moses and some two million Israelites are living in bondage in Egypt. God's wrath was displayed in Egypt. You know, the 10 plagues, uh, all of that, uh, the ultimate final plague was what? The, the death of the firstborn of Egypt, the death. God's wrath was displayed in Egypt to do what? To reveal his love and mercy to Israel. Both love and mercy were present in Egypt at the same time that wrath was in Egypt. Are you with me? When God was displaying his wrath to the people of Egypt, he was also at the same exact time, in the same exact circumstance, also revealing his love and mercy to Israel. So wrath is coming to this group, and love and mercy is coming to this group, and it's all the same time in the same place. God's wrath is revealing his love and mercy to Israel. You didn't just see wrath in Egypt. The death of the firstborn is God's wrath. It's God's judgment. But you know what you saw alongside of the death of the firstborn in Egypt and the ten plagues? You know what you saw alongside of that? You saw the Passover. It was running right along at the same time as the wrath. God is both kind and severe. Kind is the Passover. Severe is the death of those not covered by the blood of the Lamb. The blood over the door was not a religious ideology. It was real life and death trusting in God. But you needed to actually put the blood over your door. You, you couldn't just think about it. You couldn't just say, well, you know what? I believe in the blood over the door. You would need to actually go put the blood over the door. And that proved that you believed in the Passover itself. So let's fast forward. It was the same in the time of Jerusalem's destruction, 586 B.C., in the time of the prophet Daniel. Wrath and mercy were both present. In the time of Jeremiah, 
I've been reading recently a lot of the teachings of Jeremiah. In the time of Jeremiah, and he prophesied that the judgment of God is going to come upon Jerusalem. The judgment of God is coming. The wrath of God is coming upon Jerusalem. And in the past and in the present and in the future, you see the wrath of God running alongside the mercy and love and grace of God. But they're there at the same time. They're there at the same time. God can be kind and he can be severe at the same time. Jeremiah preached. When you study Jeremiah's warning that God gave Jeremiah to tell the people of Judah, Jeremiah preached surrender. Surrender. Go out to the Babylonians. Come out, of, come out of Jerusalem. Go out to the Babylonians and surrender, and you will be set free to continue life. You've got you've to surrender. In fact, I've always believed this is actually one of those spiritual pictures of the church age, that you've got to come out from behind that which you think makes you safe. And you've got to come out from behind the walls that you think will make you safe. And you've got to go outside of your safe zone, and you've got to surrender. In, the, in our case, it is to surrender to Christ. In their case, you would surrender to this army that's been formed by God through King Nebuchadnezzar, and you'll have life. But you'll have to actually go do it. You'll have to actually go out and surrender. But Jeremiah, through God, prophesied that surrender will save your life. Past, wrath, and mercy were side by side. It's the same today. In Egypt and in the destruction of Jerusalem, at the same time, wrath and mercy were side by side. It is the same today. Some are being saved while others are going to remain lost through unbelief. It's the same today. They really needed to be put under. They need, they need to put the blood of the lamb over their doors to live. They really needed to come out of their house, out of their current life, and go surrender to the Babylonians to live. God had given them a way to escape the coming wrath. In Egypt, it was the Passover. In Jerusalem, 586 B.C., it was surrender to the Babylonians. God's love was going to display his wrath and mercy in the same events. The same event that saved some was the same event that brought the wrath to others. It was the same event. But what about now? You and I will need to really put the blood of the Lamb, Jesus, over and in our lives to survive the coming wrath. This is not some religious ritual. This is life and death. This is the difference between wrath and mercy. They will be manifest together at the same time. Now listen, why am I bringing this up today? I asked the question earlier, will people be able to find salvation during the tribulation? The tribulation is the time of God's wrath. And God's wrath, past, present, and future, has always simultaneously not just revealed his judgment and his anger toward man and, and his wrath, but it also reveals love and mercy. That during the tribulation, there will be some who will find his mercy. But there will be many who will just find his wrath. It'll happen at the same time in the same event, just like in the Passover. Some found the judgment of God, the wrath of God. Some found the blood of the lamb and the mercy of God. Some will be taken and some will be left behind. 
Some will endure the wrath of God. Past, present, future. God's righteous justice requires adherence and obedience to that which is right and true. I want to say it again. If you read the scripture, God's righteous justice, he has a right and he has a wrong. He has an up and a down. He has a true and a false. But God's righteous justice requires adherence and obedience to that which is right and true as he defines it, not as we define it. Religious ritual or repetition does not impress God at all. Talk and religious ritual is cheap and counterfeit compared to living under the authority of Christ, which is called the truth. Right and true are called truth. And God is truth. So let's take the truth and find some application. In Micah chapter 6, verse 8, I want to prove to you that God has always given an opportunity to know and experience the truth and separate yourself from his wrath. He doesn't want us to experience his wrath. So he gives us the truth so that we can receive his mercy instead of his wrath. Stop rebelling against the truth. Micah 6, 8. No, O people, the Lord has told you what is good. And this is what, ha what he requires of you. To do what is right. To love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Israel. Church, do what is right according to the word of God. And then you won't live under his judgment and under his wrath. You have chosen his mercy. It's the idea that in the time of Egypt, what did you do? You had to do what was right. Put the blood of the lamb over your doorpost and death will pass over you. What if you don't? Then God's wrath will fall. Do what is right according to the word of God. Now, that has great spiritual emphasis because I'm convinced the whole Egypt Passover thing was a, a preview of the coming of Christ, the, the ultimate blood of the Lamb. Do what is right. Well, what is right? Put the blood of Christ over you. Be ready. He's the bridegroom. He is one day going to come. Be ready. Watch out. Don't let that day catch you unaware like a trap, for that day will come upon everyone living upon the earth. But pray that you'd be strong enough to escape these coming horrors and stand before the Son of Man. Do what is right. And you won't be under the wrath. Amos 5.23. Away with your noisy hymns of praise. Why would God say that to his people? Because it was religious ritual. It was ritual. Their hearts were not singing praises. They were just ritual. Away with your noisy hymns of praise. I will not listen to the music of your harps. Instead, I want to see a mighty flood of justice, an endless river of righteous living. I want you to do what is right. Don't talk about it. Do it. Live it. Live the raw life according to the word of God. Not what you call right. What he calls right. Zechariah 7, 8. Then this message came from Zechariah to the Lord, came to Zechariah from the Lord, excuse me. This is what the Lord of heaven's army says, judge fairly, show mercy, 
and kindness to one another. Do not oppress widows. Do not oppress orphans or foreigners or the poor. And do not scheme against each other. Do you see some consistency in in these three Old Testament scriptures? Just do what is right according to the word of God. Not according to your own heart. Not according to the political tendencies of that particular generation. Do what is right according to the word of God. And you will avoid the wrath and judgment of God. You'll live under the mercy of God. God's justice requires adherence and obedience to that which is right and true. And here comes the question. Can God just let go? Let that go without defiling his own holiness and his own truth? And can God just ignore a generation that refuses to do what is right? When he's held all the previous generations, especially Israel, when he's held them accountable to the standard of absolute truth, can he then allow future generations to go unpunished without wrath and do whatever they want to whenever they want to? without violating his own holiness and his own truth. So here's where we're going. Wow, this background. What is the purpose of God's wrath during the tribulation? All of that to come back to the original question. What would be the purpose of God's wrath during the tribulation? We're talking about the the people who are left behind. Man's wrath is almost always based on vengeance. To get even, right? Man's wrath is almost always based based on vengeance, that I want to get even. I want to settle accounts with you. But God's wrath is based not on vengeance only. It's based on truth and justice. His absolute truth and his absolute sense of justice. Ultimately, Listen carefully. Ultimately, God's wrath is based on his righteousness. God's wrath is based on doing what is right. And he alone is the one who can determine what is right because he alone is righteous. He's always right. But he seems, listen carefully, he seems to always offer compassion to the lost in the midst of his judgment to motivate people to repentance and salvation, he offers a chance. God's wrath during the tribulation will be justice. We know in advance that there's going to be a seven-year time on earth that's going to be so severe that if those seven years didn't stop at the appointed time, everyone would die. God's wrath during the tribulation is going to bring God's version of justice, but it will also be, listen, a call to repentance to receive mercy. One last chance. In Isaiah chapter 26, verse 9, he says, all night long, I search for you. In the morning, I earnestly seek for God, but only when you come to judge the earth will people learn to do what is right. Only when you come, Isaiah says, only when you come to judge the earth will people learn to do what is right. Only when he comes. Second Peter, a familiar verse, I'm sure to most of you. It's in the New Testament and is specifically attached to uh, the end of time. 
Verse, three, uh, verse 8, chapter 3. Do not forget this one thing, dear brothers. With the, day, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. Now, if you look at the context of this, it's not, why, why isn't he here already? Uh, we've been thinking the bridegroom's coming for a long time. I thought he would already be here. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. As some people understand slowness, why? Why, why isn't he already here? Why isn't, why, isn't, why isn't this already the tribulation? Why hasn't he already brought his wrath and judgment upon the earth that has increasingly become wicked, increasingly has rejected his word and his name and his holy people, his bride, the church? Why not? Because he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to have a chance to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come. <laughs> It'll come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Oh, it's going to happen. The bridegroom's going to come. Listen, the bridegroom's going to come, and a door's going to open. And those who are ready and waiting, they're going to go through that door, and that door's going to close. And there's going to be people left behind. And the question is, is the Lord slow in keeping his promise to open the door? No, he's not slow. There's a few more people coming in through that door before it closes. And I wonder if this pandemic isn't the voice the bridegroom is coming to a whole lot of people who are standing outside. And right now they're not ready and right now they're not waiting. And there's preachers preaching and there's teachers teaching. And the gospel's going out into places and people are paying attention, never used to pay attention. But they're paying attention right now. Ezekiel chapter 18 verse 23. Do you think that I like to see the wicked people die? <laughs> there's some people that's your image of God. Some mean father who's just waiting for you to mess up so he can get you. And here's the answer. Here's the truth. God speaking to us through Ezekiel. Do you think that I like to see wicked people die? Says the sovereign Lord. Of course not. I want them to turn from their wicked ways and live. However, he's still got this absolute truth. However, what's he want? He wants, he wants us to do what is right. Turn from our wicked ways where we think we can be our own God, make up our own rules, do what's right in our own eyes. Turn from that and live. However, if righteous people, people who have in, in the past done what is right, listen carefully, this is important, church. If righteous people turn from their righteous behavior and start doing sinful things and act like other sinners, should they be allowed to live? I'm not asking. God is. Of course not. All their righteous acts will be forgotten and they will die for their sins. Just do what is right. Then you won't have to deal with the wrath and the judgment. God's grace and mercy cover our weaknesses, but they do not cover our willful rebellion. Our willful rebellion holds us accountable to truth. Is the redeemed church, the blood-bought church, the true church, 
Is it subject to God's wrath uh, while we await for the rapture? I want to say it again. This is a big point. Is the redeemed church, if you're, if you're hearing my voice tonight and you are one of the blood-bought children of the Most High God, you're not faking it, you're not going through some religious ritual, you've been born again of the water and born again of the Spirit, Jesus lives inside of you and they know, you know that you know that you know He lives inside of you because you're a new creature, a new creation. Are you and I, while we wait for the rapture, subject to God's wrath. No. Yes, the church is subject to God's discipline. Pay attention. But not his wrath. There's a difference between discipline and wrath. And God might very well use this pandemic to discipline his church. In fact, I got to tell you, I'm convinced that it's already doing that. That God is using this pandemic, this coronavirus, to discipline his church, to refine and prepare his church, to make her ready, pure, and ready for the wedding so that when that door does open and the bridegroom comes, she'll be ready to walk through, ready and waiting. She won't be caught unaware like a trap. So let's go to the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verse 5. And have you forgotten the encouraging words God spoke to you as his dear children? What's the, what's the difference between discipline and wrath? Have you forgotten the truth? He said, my child, don't make light of the Lord's discipline and don't give up when he corrects you. So when, when God's discipline comes upon his church, who is not subject to wrath, we're subject to grace. But discipline comes with the grace. My child, don't make light of the Lord's discipline and don't give up when he corrects you. For the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes each one he accepts as his child. And as you endure this divine discipline, remember that God is treating you how? As an illegitimate child? Uh-uh, uh-uh, uh That's not how it works. As you experience this divine discipline, remember that God is treating you as one of his own children. Whoever heard of a child who was never disciplined by its father? If God doesn't discipline you as he does all of his children, it means you are illegitimate. You're not really his child at all. And since we respected our earthly fathers who disciplined us, should we submit even more? Should we submit even more to the discipline of the father of our spirits who lives forever and live forever? For our earthly fathers disciplined us for a few years, doing the best they knew how. But God's discipline is always good for us so that we might share in his holiness no discipline, and I say amen to this. No discipline is enjoyable while it's happening. It's painful. But afterward, there is a peaceful harvest of right living for those who are trained in this way. The church will experience God's discipline. In fact, I'm going to say it again. I think right now, the church is experiencing God's discipline. But it is immune to God's wrath. Listen carefully. It is immune to God's wrath and his ultimate judgment because God has already poured out his wrath and judgment on Jesus, his son, on the cross. Jesus took 
my place. He took my wrath. He took my judgment on the cross. He took our wrath. Now, if he is the blood of the lamb, the substitutionary, uh, he received, he was the substitute for what punishment and wrath was coming to me. It went upon him. Romans 5 verse 8. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we've been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, there's the blood over the door. And since we've been made right with God by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation, from God's wrath. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 and they speak of how you are looking forward to the coming of God's Son from heaven, right? Right? That's everybody, right? You're listening to me, and this is you. And they speak of how you're looking forward. You're anxiously, heart-pounding, excited about the idea that the bridegroom's coming, the door's open, we're ready, right? And they speak of how you're looking forward to the coming of God's Son from heaven, Jesus, whom God raised from the dead. He is the one who has rescued us from the terrors of the coming judgment. Why? Because he already took it. He already experienced it. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. For God chose to save us through our Lord Jesus Christ, not to pour out his anger on us. No, that's not for this bride. That's not for the bride of the bridegroom. He didn't choose us to pour out his anger on us. One more, Isaiah 53, verse 4. Surely he took our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. I want you to think about the nails in his hands and in his feet. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought me, Terry Cooper, the punishment that brought me peace was upon him. The wrath of God was upon Jesus on the cross. God struck his son. His wrath poured upon his own son. He offered his own sacrifice. God brought the sacrificial offering sufficient to pay off my debt. And then he killed the sacrifice himself. The Romans didn't kill Jesus. The Jews didn't kill Jesus. He laid down his life. The father sacrificed his own son. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. This is one of the reasons I believe the church will be taken away from the tribulation before the tribulation begins. This next scripture, Luke 21, I've read it a dozen times now. Watch out. Don't let your hearts be dulled by carousing and drunkenness and by the worries of this life. Don't let that day catch you unaware like a tramp. For that day will come upon everyone living on the earth. Keep alert at all times and pray. Pray that you might be strong enough to escape what? Pray that you might be strong enough to escape what? The coming horrors. And stand before the Son of Man. Now, back to the big question. 
Will many people be saved during the tribulation, the time of God's wrath upon the whole earth? Yes. Revelation says, listen carefully, that the number of the saved cannot be counted. But how? How is that possible? I know a lot of people struggle with this. We're going to base it on truth. The rapture itself will cause some to turn to Christ. I want to say it again. I'm convinced, based on the Word of God, that the rapture itself will cause some to turn to Christ. Number one. Number two. The Bible and the Bibles that will be left upon the earth and the words of past preachers which I assume will still be available for people to listen to and read and maybe watch on their computer, will be left on the earth to testify of the truth of God. The Word of God, either written or the Word of God that has been recorded by man through preachers previously before that door closes and the five wise bridesmaids depart, they'll still be here. Number three. The Bible talks about a supernatural appointment of 144,000 Jewish evangelists, which I'm convinced will go throughout the entire earth preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want you to imagine the impact that one Jewish evangelist had named the Apostle Paul. Now there's 144,000 of them. And they've been supernaturally called and chosen to preach the word. Now, listen, I'm convinced that their primary focus, I believe at that time, the, the church age, the time of the Gentiles is pretty much closed. And I believe their emphasis, these 144,000 Jewish evangelists, I believe their emphasis will be to the Jews scattered around the world. But I also believe that while they preach to the Jewish people, some Gentiles will come to Christ. Just like in the church age, while we were preaching to Gentiles, Jewish people came to Christ. At the same time, Revelation 7, verse 3. Wait, it describes what God's going to do during the tribulation. Don't harm the land or the sea or the trees until we have placed the seal of God on the foreheads of his servants. And I heard how many were marked with the seal of God. 144,000 were sealed from all the tribes of Israel. 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes. One more. There's also two witnesses. I'm trying to answer the question, how are so many people going to be saved during the tribulation? The revelation says they cannot be numbered. The word of God will remain. The Bibles will still be here. People will notice that the Christians are gone. Some will, who have ignored it up to that point, will maybe they'll come to Christ. The 144,000. But it also says there's another supernatural event. And there's two witnesses, two witnesses supernaturally empowered by God who will begin preaching in Jerusalem during the tribulation. The judgments of God during the tribulation will cause some to turn also. That some, some will turn during the wrath and the judgments of God as people begin to die from plagues and sicknesses and natural disasters. The preaching of the gospel angel, one last option. Revelation chapter 14 says that there's going to be a preaching angel. 
a gospel angel, Revelation 14, who's going to proclaim, proclaim the good news to every person on earth before the final outpouring of God's wrath. Revelation 14, 6 and 7. Let me read it to you. And I saw another angel flying through the sky, carrying what? What's this angel doing? And it's in the midst of the, tri toward the end of the tribulation. And this angel's carrying the eternal good news to proclaim to the people who belong to this world, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. Fear God, he shouted. Give glory to him for the time has come when he will sit as judge. Worship him who made heavens and earth, the sea, and all the springs of water. And then the end will come. Remember it says earlier that the gospel must be preached to all nations and then the end will come. Is this angel the last that will accomplish that? Now, one would ask the question, how and why would anyone turn down God's offer of mercy during the Great Tribulation? I'll ask a similar question today. Who would turn down God's offer of mercy during a pandemic on Easter weekend? What's the difference between the questions? We're in a pandemic. People are dying. People are getting sick. And there's a mystery that's going around, an unseen enemy that's going around the globe. Who would turn down his offer for mercy and eternal life right now? And yet you'll know that most people will. Who would refuse to pray that they would be strong enough to escape these coming horrors right now? So if people aren't doing it right now, what makes you think they'll do it then? You know the answer, don't you? Think about it. You know the answer. What's keeping people from coming to massive repentance right now in America? They can't see. They don't see it coming. This is how the prophet Isaiah recorded it in the book of Acts. This is how he puts it. Acts 28 verse 26. Go and say to this people, when you hear what I say, you will not understand. When you see what I do, you will not comprehend. For the hearts of these people are hardened, and their ears cannot hear, and they have closed their eyes, so their eyes cannot see, and their ears cannot hear, and their hearts cannot understand, and they cannot turn to me and let me heal them. They cannot. It's a mystery. I don't understand it. But we don't know whose hearts are hardened and we don't know whose hearts are not. Who will receive and who does not. So we preach this good news to anyone and everyone. The book of Revelation clearly states that many will still refuse to repent during the tribulation. I know that's shocking. During the tribulation. Until you look right now during a pandemic and no one's gone into massive repentance. In Revelation, during the tribulation, nine, Revelation 9 verse 20, but the people who did not die in these plagues still refused to repent of their evil deeds and turn to God. They continued to worship demons and idols made of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders or their witchcraft or their sexual immorality or their thefts. They refused to repent. All you're going to do is do what is right and come out from under the wrath of God. No, I will not. They can't see. They can't hear. Their hearts are so hard. 
It looks like, listen, this is a sobering scripture. I know it is. Uh, in fact, I have a hard time putting my mind around it. It looks like there's a point of time, and I'm going to say in advance, I don't know where that point is, where there will be no turning, a point of no more turning. It's like whatever road you have chosen at this particular point, and by the way, this happens, it's revealed in the last chapter of Revelation, the last chapter in the Bible. It's like whatever road you have chosen up to this point, you're, you're frozen on that road and you can't turn. And let me read it to you. Revelation chapter 22, verse 10. And then he, God, instructed me, John, do not seal up the prophetic words in this book, for the time is near. And let the one who is doing harm continue to do harm. Do you see it? It's like there's a, there's a road that's been chosen that you, you can't get off of now. Let the one who is doing harm continue to do harm. Let the one who is vile continue to be vile. And let the one who is righteous continue to be righteous. And let the one who is holy continue to be holy. And look at the context of that statement. Look, I am coming soon. Bringing my reward with me. He's not bringing wrath to those who are unrighteous bringing my reward with me to repay all people according to their deeds. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. What is likely to happen to most of those who are saved? Here comes one of the last questions tonight. What do you think is likely to happen to most of the people who do come to salvation during the tribulation, to these tribulation saints? What do you think is going to happen to them the moment that it becomes known that they have come to Christ? They will likely, listen, they will likely die of hunger because they have been cut off from commerce by the power of the ruling Antichrist. This pandemic that we're going through right now clearly reveals how quickly the world power could come and cut off anybody who doesn't go along. Can you see it? Because I can see it. Either you go along with the ruling authoritarian government and the Antichrist in the time of the tribulation, or you will not go into stores or we'll cut you off. You're not going to, we'll separate you from mankind, from humanity. If you, and that'll be the mark. That'll be one of the things that marks you. You won't be able to buy or sell. Revelation 13, 16. He required everyone, small and great, rich or poor, free or slave, to be given a mark on the right hand or on the forehead. And no one could buy or sell anything without that mark, which was either the name of the beast or the number representing his name. Wisdom is needed in here. Let the one with understanding solve the meaning of the number of the beast, for it is the number, the number of man. His number is six. Six, six. Much mystery in that scripture, but the buying and the selling. Can you see in this pandemic how easy that would be to administer in a one world authoritarian government? Or what will Christians die from in the tribulation? Or they'll be murdered by the armies of the Antichrist because they confess Christ as Lord and they refuse openly to go along with the ruling authoritarian antichrist. Revelation 7:14. And I said to him, "Sir, you are the one who knows. 
Then he said to me, these are the ones who died in the great tribulation. They washed their robes in the blood of the lamb and have made them white. There's, this records there's going to be a number of people going to die in the tribulation. Why? Because the armies of the Antichrist will murder them. Revelation 12, 17. And the dragon, that's Satan, will, was angry at the woman and declared war against the rest of her children. All who keep God's commandments, I'll hold them up, and maintain their testimony for Jesus, they'll be put to death. He declared war on them. Who? Satan. He's coming for them. Now, does he have power? Oh, during the tribulation, he has great power. Revelation 13, 7. And the beast was allowed to wage war. The Antichrist, supernatural power, under the authority of Satan. The beast was allowed to wage war against God's holy people, people and to conquer them. But only for a season. Only for a season. And he was given authority to rule over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all the people who belong to this world worship the beast. They are the ones whose names were not written in the book of life before the world was made. The book that belongs to the lamb who was slaughtered. This next question is huge. It is huge. What about those who hear the gospel before the rapture? What about the people who hear the gospel before the rapture, but they reject it? Will they get another chance to accept Christ during the tribulation? No one knows the answer to this question for sure, but there are some worrisome words from the Apostle Paul about this specific question of those who have had within their reach the gospel knowledge before the door closes and the bridegroom comes. And they refuse it or they say, I'll get to it later when I get to finish my life first. What about them? Paul writes this, 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 8. Then the man of lawlessness will be revealed. And I believe this is after the church has been removed. The man of lawlessness will be revealed, but the Lord Jesus will kill him with the breath of his mouth and destroy him by the splendor of his coming. That will be seven years after the church is removed. This man will come to do the work of Satan with counterfeit power and signs and miracles. What does it look like? Counterfeit power, signs, and miracles. He, the Antichrist, will use every kind of evil deception to fool those on their way to destruction. Who are they? He's going to use his power to fool people on their way to destruction. Why aren't people repenting during the tribulation? There's a power. Is this a description of people who had the chance to receive Christ before the door closed and the bridegroom came. He will use every kind of evil deception to fool those on their way to destruction because they refuse to love and accept the truth that would have saved them. So God will cause them to be greatly deceived and they'll believe these lies. They'll believe the lies and they won't repent. They'll be condemned for enjoying evil rather than believing the truth. Is this a specific reference to those who rejected the gospel before the tribulation? We can't be for sure, but I'm going to tell you, do not test God. I know this, the Bible says clearly, today is the day of salvation. Today, when you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as they did in the rebellion. So let's summarize and close tonight. Can you see how it's possible? Excuse me, can you see how it's impossible to almost believe some of what this is? 
Example, some people say I'm overboard regarding the soon return of Christ, but they say they're believers. I'm going to tell you, if you're a believer, you believe he's coming because he says he's coming soon. You can't almost believe this. There is no neutral to God's word. Yes, there might be some arguments or debates about some of the timing, about whether or not it's a pre-tribulation rapture or mid-tribulation rapture. Those are not points of contentions of faith. We're both believing he's coming. God's wrath or God's grace? Which one will you choose? Jesus is coming soon, one way or the other. Through the grave or through the trumpet, he's coming soon. How will you respond? Here's my final question. How will you respond? There's been 11 sessions on the seven churches of Revelation and, uh, and, and the rapture. How will you respond to this series? I'm convinced that those who really believe it will purify their lives of sin, number one. And number two, you will become messengers of the good news of Christ to those around you. One last scripture tonight and in the end of this series that guarantees a joyful heart to all of us who are in Christ today and we are ready and we are waiting upon his return. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, for God chose to save us through our Lord Jesus Christ, not to pour out his anger on us. Christ died for us so that whether we are dead or alive, when he returns, we can live with him forever. So encourage each other and build each other up just as you are already doing, dear brothers and sisters. Honor those who are your leaders in the Lord's work. They work hard among you and give you spiritual guidance. Whether we're dead or alive, when he comes, we're going to live with him forever. Praise God. Hallelujah. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that we know in advance that one day the door's going to open and the bridegroom's going to come and receive his bride. May we be ready. May we be waiting. May we be sharing this good news when you come. Father, may it all be for your glory, for your glory and for the souls of man, we pray in Jesus' name. And amen.